amen and good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Um, we are starting today a three-week series on sexual wholeness. If you were unaware of that, I apologize. Uh, I'm glad you're at Pulpit Rock, but uh, we've been talking about this for a little while. And, uh, you know, this is not a subject that we frequently discuss as a church, at least not from the stage. And uh, so I, you know, it, we're hoping that we can model kind of what healthy conversations would look like. And we're hoping that maybe this would be the beginning of some healthy conversations for us. We believe church should be the safest place to talk about anything, uh, but we also believe that historically that has not always been true, and so we're trying to do better, and especially on this subject. Uh, but you may be sitting there wondering to yourself, just why? Why would you do this, Jonathan? Uh, what, are you just trying to cause a stir? Are you trying to, was attendance down? You're trying to booster it, uh, you know? Um, I, no, that, that's not what this is about. I actually, I was thinking about this uh, passage. I've been thinking about this a lot. There's a passage over in Matthew chapter 9 uh, where the scene is Jesus going from town to town and there are these mobs of people who are following him and just like pressing in because they're so excited about his ministry. And it, it says that Jesus looks at the crowds and he has compassion on them. Um, and I, like I, that is how he sees us all the time, right? Whatever you're going through, like he is seeing you right now with compassion. Uh, but Matthew tells us also the reason for his compassion. He says that when he looks at us, he sees us with compassion because the crowds were harassed and helpless. Harassed and helpless. And that's also how he sees us right? Uh, we're just harassed. We're harassed by the world, by our own desires, by the devil, by just, we're just harassed and we're helpless. We want to be the sort of people that we were created to be, but we just can't really quite pull it off. And uh, so there's this harassment and this helplessness. And I see this in the area of sexuality. I don't know if you feel this. I feel it harassed and helpless at times. I look out and I see other people and I'm like, yeah, it seems like they're harassed and helpless as well. There's some harassment and some helplessness when it comes to our sexuality. And I, I'm sure you have felt this. Uh, certainly the world that we live in does not help. It kind of pulls us in different directions. Uh, and you have some people in our world saying, hey, well, you have to affirm me as a sexual being to show me love. And that's not true. And other people in the church, they're saying, well, there's no more important issue to stand on than what the Bible says about sexuality. And that also is not true. Neither of those are rational statements, but they get a lot of airtime. And so we get like pulled in these different directions. And like the, these loud voices have created a very toxic conversation that I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't even know how to engage with it very well. And so part of what I, what I would like to do with this series is just help us all to take a breath. Would you take a breath with me? Doesn't that feel good? Oh, gosh. Uh, can we just take a breath and understand the reality that we are living in? Okay? This is our reality. A thousand years from today, assuming Jesus does not return, a thousand years from today, do you know what will be happening? Humans will be profoundly struggling with their sexual brokenness a thousand years from today. Do you know what was true a thousand years ago? 
humans were profoundly struggling with their sexual brokenness. There is literally nothing new under the sun. And while I find that on some level discouraging, I also find that on some level very comforting. God has literally seen it all when it comes to sexuality. He has seen it all. And he is not freaked out by our sexual brokenness. It does not shock him. He's not up in heaven clutching his pearls saying, oh, I can't believe what those perverts came up with now. (laughs) There's not the voice of God on this subject. He loves us. He wants us to grow in this area. Of course he wants us to grow in this area. Absolutely he wants us to grow in this area. But he's not panicked about it. It's we humans who panic. It's we humans who feel that urgency, not God. And so part of what I I think we need in this series is just, can we just learn to take a breath and trust God again in this arena of sexuality? Can we learn to walk with him to sexual wholeness, walk with him towards sexual wholeness, knowing full well that everyone in this room will die with some sexual brokenness in their life, right? We know that. We're not going to get there in this life. So we can trust him and walk with him where he wants to lead us. We can take a breath and not panic. And we certainly can stop shouting toxic ideas at one another. If we see ourselves rightly, I think we will see ourselves as sexual beings created in the image of God, but also having a sin nature that dramatically at times affects our sexuality. So we have to learn to trust him and walk with him in that area. Now, I know this is true. We are a mixed room of people, right? Um, All of us have had very different sexual experiences. Um, And uh, so we're all going to bring to the subject questions and issues and things that we are thinking about. And I'm just saying this for my own benefit. Could you look at me and just please understand, I am not going to be able to, in three weeks, address everything you might want me to address. Okay, so just let's get that out of our heads. Uh, But also, could you look at me and realize this? I might say something in these next three weeks that you disagree with. That's actually okay. The job of pastor is not just to say things that we all agree with. I'm not sure I could do that anyway, but that's actually not the job, right? So I'm going to do my best to present some things from a a scriptural perspective, um, but please study this for yourself. Please press into this with God and with the Holy Spirit. Do not surrender your capacity to listen to the Holy Spirit to me. I don't want it. God gave that to you, so listen and engage with the Holy Spirit. And please, uh, can I just, like this is the, if, if you hear nothing else, just hear this. Can we all just in this area carry what we believe with great humility? Um, I, I can't think of two areas where human arrogance is more obviously stupid than spirituality and sexuality, right? And we're going to be talking about both of those for three weeks. So let's just engage with a lot of humility. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Uh, Let's be receptive to what he is doing. Here's what these three weeks are going to look like. Today I want to talk about sex before sin. Sex actually predates sin, so it's relevant what it looked like before sin got a hold of that thing. Next week, we're just going to talk about what Jesus wants us to do with our sinful sexuality. We're not going to think about anyone else. We're just going to think about our own issues and block everybody else out. But then the week after that, we're going to just think about other people, and we're going to talk about what we should do with everyone else's broken sexuality. And then the week after that, we're going to mercifully go back to the book of Acts and never bring up sex again. (laughs) 
<laughs> Unless it goes really well, and then we'll do it every week. No. Uh, would you pray with me, please? Lord, we come to you. Uh, just We know we're broken. We don't know the full extent of it, but we know it's there. And so would you give us humility and grace? God, we need to hear from you about our stuff, about our brokenness. So in a way that we will recognize as your voice, will you speak to each one of us over these next three weeks? In Jesus' name, we pray and we trust. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the first three chapters of Genesis are actually really important to us as believers. They're, they're not just like the story of how things got started, but they are a story about the true nature of God, this God who prefers something over nothing, who prefers beauty over formlessness. And the creation poem starts with this picture of a God who is like hovering over the formless earth, getting ready to bring life and everything else up out of those waters. And what God creates is the perfection that we humans were meant for, but we lost. We were meant for it, but we lost it. This is why every human who has ever lived carries in their heart this desperate longing for something that they cannot quite put their finger on. It's this thing that we've lost. And we look out at the world and we're like, oh man, it shouldn't be like that. Because we, we know that something has been lost. And we even look inside of ourselves at our own world and we're like, oh, there's something not quite right here and I can't quite put my finger on it. I'm trying to fix it, but I can't seem to. I feel helpless about that. It shouldn't be like that. So it's out there in the world. We see this brokenness, but we also see it in here there's a brokenness. We have lost the perfection that God created us for. We feel that in every area of life including our sexuality. Now, part of the reason I would suggest that sexuality can be so painful and complicated uh, is because it is like a physical reminder that we feel almost every day that we carry in our body that we have lost something we've been created for. Um, so we just walk around and we feel it. It's not quite right. So what do we lose in our sexuality? That's what I want us to consider today. What was God thinking when he created us as sexual beings? I want to talk about some broad principles. These are not necessarily uh, verses about sexuality. I want to apply them to our sexuality, but they're really verses about what it means to be human, but they have some implications for our sexuality. Look at verse 26 of Genesis 1. The author writes, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth 
Subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So there's a whole lot we can observe from that passage. The most obvious and the most notable thing is humans are created in the image of God. And that concept is so huge and so beautiful. I'm not sure anyone has fully explained what it is. I mean, it's the reason we care about goodness and beauty. It's the reason we desire to create something and make something out of our lives. It's the reason we search for significance. And the text is explicit that all humans, male and female, carry the image of God in equal parts. So like nobody gets less image of God. And also there's no point in the Bible where this is revoked, right? So sin enters the picture and it it like wrecks everything, but God does not remove his likeness from us. He says, you're still created in my image. You also note, very important, verse 28, God blesses the humans and tells them to be fruitful and increase in number. This is why we know that sex predates sin, because there's only one way to increase in number uh, for humans. And so like, that's what he's creating there. But also this verse, I think, is notable because like, like we have to recognize this is why it can sometimes be dangerous for our soul when we think of sex as dirty and unspiritual. Because sex, like every other created thing, God declares as very good. Uh, so it is not dirty and unspiritual. It is a created, uh, a created thing, created by the Most High God, and declared very good. That brings us to Genesis chapter 2. Here's a second account of creation where the author gives us some other details. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So we see this, like, I mean, this is a very intimate picture of God breathing life into this man creating him with love and purpose. But we also see for the first time, something not good has happened. This man is alone. So to solve that, God says, I will make for him a helper. I don't know how that sounds to your ears. You know, I, like in English, the word helper, I, there's a connotation to me. It makes it sound kind of like God's like, I'll make an assistant for him, someone to take notes and pick up his dry cleaning. Like that's what he's doing there. But Obviously, the Bible wasn't written in English. This part of the Bible was written in ancient Hebrew. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the word that is used that we translate as helper occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. In the majority of those instances, so 15 out of 21 of those instances, that word is being used to refer to God as our helper. Now, God is no one's assistant. We understand that. Um, I, I just I point that out to say that this helper word, it's, it's not about inequality and power in any way between Adam and Eve. It's a word that is evoking or is meant to evoke like this deep love between these two people, this deep desire for the good 
of the other. This intimate knowledge of one another, like God has with us. That's what he's describing. And I think that's the first real clue to what God is picturing when he creates sex. The expression of sexuality between these two people will be tied completely to the idea that they are suitable helpers for one another in the way that God is a helper to us. So that means that sex is tied to this idea of unconditional love, to the good of the other, to all of that sort of stuff. And this is something like we just have to observe about sex. That God's ideal for sexuality is not that sex exists for its own sake. Does that make sense? Sex exists always as an expression of something else. And in this case, it is explicitly an expression of the suitable helper thing that God does with us that they were to do with each other. So sex is always about something else, always. Now we get more clues about that here in the next part. Look at uh, verse 21. It says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. The Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So in this uh, scriptures, uh, often that word bone is used with a connotation of strength. So that's part of what Adam is saying. The word flesh, on the other hand, is often used in Scripture as a connotation of weakness. So much so that New Testament writers use this word flesh as a synonym for sin. Now, we understand both Adam and Eve were totally sinless at this point. So that's not what he's saying. But that what the phrase seems to be suggesting here, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, is that Adam is looking at her and seeing, hey, she's like me. She's like me in some significant way. She has strengths just like I do. She has limitations just like I do. And so what he's saying is what we are somehow made of the same stuff and made to fit together, both physically, spiritually, emotionally, in every way, they were suited to each other. And because they were like each other, they were created with a capacity for intimacy that neither of them had with any other created thing. So they had intimacy with God, and that was pretty great, but they also, they had this intimacy with each other in a way that reflected the sort of intimacy that they had with God. Look at verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So what is the reason? That is the reason. Why are they united as one flesh? Intimate love is the reason for their union. That's what the author is saying, is it is about this sort of thing that God created between them. That is what this one flesh concept that we understand is tied to our sexuality is really about. One flesh is a beautiful phrase, and it's intentionally invoking this concept of God that was so central to the Hebrews' uh, picture of who he was. God was one. In fact, the most important scripture probably in all of the Hebrew Bible was the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one God. You shall have no other God before him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. The oneness of God, it was his defining attribute that set him apart from all the other gods of the nations around him. Now, in the New Testament, we come to understand something unique about God's oneness, is that his oneness exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And they are distinct, but they are so united that they exist in perfect oneness. Now, for us as sinful humans, this is hard to wrap our minds around. That there could be like total unity between distinct beings. That's why we, always, we say, well, the Trinity is a mystery. Well, it's a mystery because we don't know how to do it. We don't know how to have that unity with another distinct being. It's not a mystery because it can't be done. In fact, what we see with Adam and Eve is before sin, not only was that possible with each other, but that's what we were created to do with other people. Adam and Eve were able to know each other perfectly, perfectly with total vulnerability. There was total unity There was total understanding. There was total awareness of the other's needs. It was a dance of perfect, vulnerable intimacy that actually reflected the triune God himself. And the author says that is the reason that we humans were created to grow up, leave our family of origin, and unite with someone else like that with total intimacy. So God's idea for sex was never that it just be some independent activity. It was that it would be a reflection of this like intimate oneness and it would be a demonstration of the spiritual reality that they were totally united in the way that God is united with himself. And then in that oneness, they'd be able to carry out the command of being fruitful and filling the earth. Now, look at the next verse because this gives us a lot of hints about what has gone wrong, because a lot has gone wrong since. Uh, Look at verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So they were naked. I know you know what that means, but like really what it means or what it's evoking here is that there was no impulse or attempt to manage or protect themselves or their image with others. Think about that. Just at all times, they presented themselves as they were. They knew exactly who they were. That's what they presented to the other person. And so the intimacy that they experienced presumed a sort of total radical vulnerability in their relationship. And they had no shame, meaning they're totally at ease with who they were and their place in God's world. So they had zero thought, like the thought never entered their head that there was something lacking in them because they so fully believed that they were complete as God made them, that they were made the way that they were intended to be by God. And because of that, like there's no control or manipulation in this relationship. Those are behaviors that we learn to compensate for our insecurity. I mean, like this is, it's hard to imagine, but think about Adam and Eve's relationship and especially their sexual relationship. There was zero insecurity in it, not an ounce. They, they had zero questions about who they were. There was no point at which they experienced any hurt in this relationship. They never made each other feel rejected, not even a little bit. They literally could not make one another feel bad about themselves because their state at all times was naked and totally unashamed, fully who God created me to be. It's astounding when you think about it. I mean, they're, they're totally confident that they are very good. Because they've been created in the image of God and God declared it. That's why it's notable in the next chapter when they do sin, what's the first thing that happens? They go and they make some clothes and they're like, man, I gotta, I gotta hide some of myself because I feel this shame. And they start like uh, hiding aspects of who they are from one another and from God. And from that point forward, 
This is the mess that we are in. The vulnerability, the total vulnerability required for sex or for relationships comes with this inherent risk, right, because of shame. But before sin, um, I mean, it's hard to wrap your mind around, but sex existed in total security between these two people and total covenantal love. That was God's dream for it. So let's make a few observations just about the ideal here. When we say God's ideal for our sexuality, what do we mean? Well, we mean a lot of things. For instance, we mean this. Sex was never about sex. Sex was always an expression of covenantal love. Before sin, that is true. And I would suggest this, that Adam and Eve didn't even ever actually desire sex, at least not in the way that we desire sex. They, they had sex, presumably, but their desire was for this oneness and this unity and this intimacy that God created them for as an image bearer. And sex was just a beautiful and natural expression of that, not a thing to be desired. So before sin, they're not driven in any way by sexual desire. They're walking in oneness with one another. That was the nature of their relationship. And what that means is because sex for them was so embedded in intimate oneness, one major difference between them and us, I would say, is this. I don't think their sexuality was open. I don't think it was. Meaning, I don't think they ever experienced unattached sexual desire. Not once. Uh, and I know that it was kind of just the two of them. But if like Adam saw another woman walking in the Garden of Eden, I don't think he would have had any attraction to her. That would have not even computed to his sinless heart. It's hard for us to picture, but why would he be attracted to that woman? Because sexuality was so tied to the intimate oneness that he shared with Eve and only Eve. Uh, like that's how it worked before sin. You would only ever be attracted to the person that you were in a covenantal love relationship with which is mind-blowing. Think about it, though. If we were sinless, if we did not carry a sin nature inside of us, um, it wouldn't make any sense for us to be sexually attracted to a stranger. Like, no sense. I, I don't think that was true of Adam and Eve. They, they, they were never sexually attracted to types of people. Adam didn't have a type. Uh, like they, he wasn't like, oh, man, I really like brunettes. They just do it for me. No, uh, Eve didn't say things like, man, tall guys, that's what I like. His type was Eve, right? That was his only type, Eve. Eve's type was Adam. That was her only type because their sexual expression was entirely fixed in intimate oneness and covenantal love. Does that blow your mind? That blows my mind. Like in my world, I'm sure you live in the same world I do, where our sexuality is defined by the category of person you are attracted to. And what's crazy about that is none of us can control it. We just kind of wake up one day and we find ourselves turned on by a certain type of person who looks a certain way or who embodies certain qualities that trigger something to us. But I would submit to us that random attraction that we are unable to control only exists because of sin. Shocking. What's crazy about that, we've fallen so far from God's ideal, we don't even associate that behavior with sin. I mean, unless you're attracted to the wrong sort of things, and then you need to stop it. But if you just have a type... Nothing wrong with that. Everybody has a type, right? Well, everyone who 
carries a sin nature has a type. Isn't this what our Savior Jesus is pointing out in Matthew chapter 5? If anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery in his heart. And we love to pull that verse out of context and apply it to porn because it really works in that way. But they didn't have porn back then. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he is saying to us is like, like it's so radical. It elevates the ideal so high. He is saying if you find yourself noticing someone in a sexual way other than the person you are in covenantal love with, that is adultery. And you might say to Jesus, well, I, I don't know, Jesus, can I be attracted to someone without lusting? And I think he would say, I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, sure, y'all have rationalized all these layers of, well, I just was attracted, but I wasn't really lusting. But that's just so that you feel better about doing something that you don't know how to stop. But the truth of it is, only sinful humans find themselves attracted to more than one person. I think is the reality. It, sinless means we would have total agency over our sexuality, including even attraction. That's perfect and sinless. And just because we can justify something doesn't mean it's not sinful. Anything that falls short of the perfect ideal of God is sin. We were not created to have open attraction. That is what Jesus is saying. You know, part of the problem with discussing sexuality in this church, I, we get this feedback sometimes. Well, well, hey, why don't we call out sexual sin more often? I don't think the problem is that we aren't calling out sexual sin in the church. I think the problem is we're using a very human definition of sexual sin, and then we're only calling out certain types of sexual sin in the church. And we're ignoring that by God's definition, this is the gospel truth. We are all constantly sinning sexually. All of us constantly sinning sexually. Uh, we're all on the same ground in this. Like it's real easy to feel superior to someone who has a, like a raging porn addiction because we know that can be destructive. But if we let God define sin and not let other humans define it, like we are, our only conclusion is we're sinning all the time. And I don't say that to make us feel bad. Like, I really, like it makes me feel bad, but I, that's not why I'm saying it. I say that so we can finally realize we are all standing on the same ground. Every human who has ever existed on this issue is standing on the same ground. We're going to talk next week just about what do we do with that? What do we do with the sinful sexuality that persists constantly in our lives? Um, but let's stay with God's ideal for a minute here. Let's keep observing some things about God's ideal before sin entered the world. Uh, not only were Adam and Eve not driven by their sexual desires, I would also say this. There was no sex without mutuality. So, you know, self was a part of sex, but there was nothing about sex that was related to self-gratification, right? So Adam totally entrusted himself to Eve. Eve totally entrusted herself to Adam, and they both were totally trustworthy with it. And so there's this mutual generosity that exists in their relationship, and that defined their sexual experiences with each other. Also observe this. They were not detached from their sexuality, nor were they defined by it. Naturally, they walked in the sexuality that God gave them as a gift. One of the consequences for us as sinful humans is sometimes we can have such a conflicted relationship with this created thing called sex that some of us, we just will detach from it and just push it away from our soul. Adam and Eve did not do that. They walked in it naturally, but they also were not defined by it. 
They were not defined by what they were attracted to. Adam's identity was not his attraction to Eve. We've gotten into this habit of defining ourselves by what we find attractive. Like we even have that phrase, sexual identity, to refer to this. What's your sexual identity? It's your definition of who you are by what you find attractive. And I think what God would say to us is what he says to us whenever we attach our identity to an earthly thing besides him. He would say to us, your identity is an image bearer of God, the beloved of God, and anything else you attach yourself to will by nature disappoint until you rediscover that core identity. And that doesn't just mean our sexuality. That means like our identity as a mom or a dad or our our job or our our national identity or our financial identity. I mean, we just are, are constantly attaching our identity to things. And I think God says to us again and again, all of those things will disappoint you Because your created identity is what you're looking for. And your created identity is the beloved of God. That's your created identity. One last observation about sex before sin entered the world. Um, I think we need to observe this. In the expression of sexuality, no one was a body. Like at no moment was someone just a body to be used. Everyone was a person connected to God and bearing the image of God at all times. Their connection to God was a part of their sexual expression. And that sounds weird. I, like our sinful ears m- might struggle with that, but like God was very present in their sexual expression. I'm convinced of that because he was very present in every aspect of their life. And it is crazy to think that when it comes to this aspect of life, he'd be walking around the garden and be like, oh gosh, I you know, need some privacy. I'm gonna be over here. You know, like God's not ashamed of their nakedness. He created them naked. Like, he's not ashamed by sex. There was nothing hidden about it because there was nothing sinful about it. It pleased God when they walked in this intimate oneness with one another. And there was nothing dehumanizing about it. They weren't just using each other's bodies for gratification because God said it was okay. This is something... uh, I think we need to do a better job in church talking about this. And this may be hard, but I... We understand just because two people are married and they're allowed to have sex, that doesn't mean sexual sin stops. There's nothing about marriage that means you've reached the sexual ideal that God dreamed up when he invented this thing. Married sexual sin is as constant as premarital sexual sin, right? Manipulation, coercion, detachment, control, self-gratification, deception, demanding sex, avoiding sex, imagining others during sex, detaching during sex. We could probably go on all day with things that happen in marriage, Christian marriage, all the time that are just as sinful to God's perfect eyes as premarital sex. I think sometimes Christians get married so they'll stop sinning sexually and then they've sinned against each other every day since. They've just been doing it in a way that other Christians would say is acceptable. But that's not how sin works, right? The church doesn't get to define what sin is. God defines it. And God defines it as anything less than the ideal that we were created for. Which is a pretty big definition. And I'm convinced uh, because of that definition, like we should talk about this. Postmarital sexual sin is probably as frequent a problem as premarital sexual sin in the church. Because when you understand what God's definition of our ideal sexuality is, of perfect sexuality, 
uh, that he says anything less than, anything that falls short of this is sin. Here's how I would define it. Uh, To God, the ideal for sexuality is sex is about covenantal love for one person characterized by total oneness, total oneness, total intimacy, total unity, total vulnerability. And all of that, while both people are totally connected in perfect fellowship with God. That's the ideal. And when you describe his ideal in a way that's more reflective of the holiness of God, gosh, I don't know that there has ever been a moment of sexual expression between two sinful humans that ever reached the ideal. I'm pretty sure all of it falls short. And I know that's going to offend some of us who are told if you just get married, it's fine. You, you won't cease from falling short. And hey, I feel like I'm doing pretty good in this area. And I'm not saying that there's nothing good in, in, in anyone's sexual expressions. I understand that there can be good things in our expressions of sexuality, but there's never good enough things, right? Because we're always falling short of that. And if we're not doing that perfectly, it is by definition sin. Perfect means perfect, right? Perfect means perfect. This is what we've lost. And this is what none of us have been able to get back. And if you're saying to yourself, man, Jonathan, that's a hard teaching. You're raising the bar of sexual righteousness so impossibly high that like no one ever has a chance of reaching it. We can't even see it really from where we live. Yeah, yes, that is the point. You're getting it. All of us are totally without hope of ever experiencing God's ideal for our sexuality because all of us are way more sinful sexually than we ever could imagine. And this is why it makes no sense for us to beat up somebody for their sexual mistakes or brokenness, right? This is why. Because we understand his holy ideal. Perfect means perfect, and we're not that. This is also why I'm so deeply thankful that one New Testament writer said, just pondering this, said, what a wretched man am I? Because he was looking at God's perfect law and he says, what a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Coming and going, just always death, just this impossible place. Who will ever rescue me? Thanks be to God who rescues us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He doesn't rescue us by trying to be pure. He rescues us only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our efforts at righteousness in the area of sexuality, they only ever look promising to us from our perspective. But from the perspective of a perfectly holy God, we are all constantly falling drastically short of his ideal. And you take the person on earth, like, I I don't know who it is, but let's just, not Jesus, but of all the rest of us humans, if you take the person who has been the most sexually pure person in the history of the world, um, you read Isaiah 64, you have no hope but concluding uh, that that sexual purity looks like filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. So there really is no cause to put down and look down on others for their sexuality. What God says to us again and again in the New Testament is that faith in Jesus is the only righteousness he will accept. Faith in Jesus 
is the only righteousness that God will accept from us. And some of us were kind of told, well, yeah, it's faith in Jesus, but also be righteous on your own. And it's like, no, faith in Jesus is the only righteousness that God will accept. And so that's where I think we should probably end for today is with Jesus. Um, let me ask you a question. And I, this is a rhetorical question. Please, please, please do not shout out answers to this question. Um, <laughs> Why didn't Jesus have sex? Um, have you ever thought about that? Why didn't Jesus have sex? So he could have, let's establish that first. If Adam and Eve had sex, sex is not inherently sinful. Uh, if anyone could have had sex in a sinless way, we would say Jesus probably could have done it, right? But he chose not to. Why? Let me suggest something that I think uh, will help us see what's happening in our souls uh, like, we know this about Jesus. He's fully human, but also fully God. And the fully God part means that he lived in perfect unity and oneness and intimacy with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father at all times, at all times in his life, except for this one moment on the cross when God turns his back away from Jesus. Um, that's what was so painful to him about the cross, right? That experience. And that's why we get to be forgiven because God turned his back on Jesus. We know that by faith in him, he will never turn his back on us no matter how much sinful sexuality we have in our life. But prior to the cross, for his entire life, Jesus experiences this perfect communion and oneness with the triune God. Could it be? The reason that Jesus did not have sex is because the sinless Jesus lived God's ideal where sex is not about sex, that was not something he desired, but it is about oneness and intimacy. And because he walked in constant oneness and intimacy with God, he didn't feel the need to chase that thing that we're all chasing because we lost it. He had not lost what we lost because of sin. So he's not driven by his sexuality. He's not ashamed of his sexuality. He's also not defined by his sexuality. He was defined by his constant oneness with God. And because of that, he did not pursue sex. Uh, there's a Christian author, psychologist, Dr. Julie Slattery. She said this, you can't live without intimacy. You can live without sex. That is absolutely true, right? Like people do it all the time. Jesus lived without sex. What's interesting is the sin in us convinces us the opposite is true. The sin in us convinces us that sex is the thing that we need, but we don't. It's actually intimacy and oneness that our soul is after. And Jesus had more intimacy and oneness than any human who had ever existed, and so therefore he did not pursue sex because he was content and he had what ultimately sex is about. I would suggest this, that our sex drive, like whatever it is that we crave sexually, it is not really about sex. I realize that is how it feels. Like I'm a human too. I realize it feels like it is about sex. But what it really is about is finding that thing that we humans lost. Our sex drive is about this quest to find intimate, covenantal oneness. And here's the thing, you don't have to have sex to find that. 
right? It's this being totally vulnerable, without shame, experiencing the unconditional love of God, the unconditional love of others. And, uh, you know, all the sex we could ever have does not satisfy that longing because what's driving us, what's driving our craving for sex is not a quest for sex, it's a quest for this intimate oneness that we lost, the reason that our world and all of us, the reason we're so messed up sexually is because of the way sin in us works. We have this thing that we lost that we really want and sin in us keeps taking us to something that will never satisfy that. And again and again, we just keep running to that thing like, oh, sex is the answer, sex is the answer, sex is the answer. And it doesn't matter how many people live their life and say, no, sex was not the answer. We're like, well, but maybe it will be for me. And it never is. That's what we're looking for. Intimate covenantal oneness. That's what we lost. I think what gave Jesus total agency over his sexuality was that he experienced this constant intimacy and oneness with his heavenly father. And so what I want to suggest for us is this. Um, you know, maybe the place to start when we're talking about dealing with our sexuality and our trying to pursue sexual wholeness, the single greatest sexual practice you and I could engage in this is the thing that will heal us the most, that will restore us the most, that will give us the most of what we have lost is experiencing the unconditional love of Jesus. That's what we're actually after. It just feels like it's sex. I know how discouraging it is. Like I, I resonate with what Paul is saying when he says, what a wretched man I am. When you look at the ideal and you're like, ugh, like I'm just... You know, we're just full of this disruptive longing and it causes us to act out or to, you know, shut down or to feel shame or to hurt ourselves or hurt others because of that. And I think so often when we start talking about sex, that's where we start is the ways that sin has twisted sex. Um, but if we recognize that sex has never really been about sex, uh, maybe we should start in a different place. Maybe we should start with covenantal love, because that ultimately is the thing that we're on a quest to refine. And could I suggest that the best place to start when it comes to understanding our sexuality is with the covenantal love of Jesus and with this reality that we are secure in his covenantal love in a way that nothing else on earth, certainly no sexual relationship will ever give us. We are secure with him and it doesn't waver his love for us when we're doing sexual things we're ashamed of. It doesn't waver when we're confused or we're frustrated about our sexuality. His love doesn't waver when someone is hurting us because of the sin in their lives with their sexuality. The cross declares that love is constant. That's why he calls it a new covenant in his blood. The old covenantal love is forever gone to us. But the new covenant of his blood, it reveals both how far we've fallen and how much we have lost. And it also reveals how total his salvation is. So where I think we start is this. Um, you know, some of us probably need to start by surrendering some of our pride. You know, we thought we did it. We thought we were the ones honoring God with our sexuality. We thought we were one of the good ones, and there's those bad people out there doing all sorts of other stuff, but we're doing our best, and we're proud of that. And honestly, we need to take a step back and see ourselves through the lens of God's holiness. We are way more sinful than any of us realize. There's a reason Jesus died on a cross for you, and the reason wasn't you were so close, <laughs> 
right? The reason was you were so far and you had no hope of ever getting close. So he had to die because he loved you. Some of us need to just surrender that pride that we've carried maybe for years for not being like those people. Others of us need to surrender our shame. Uh, You know, we've carried this shame and convinced ourselves because we're honest about our sexual brokenness and we see how broken we are. We've uh, internalized that as there's something maybe unlovable about us before God. And we carry that shame and we need to lay it down. There's a reason Christ died on a cross for you. And it wasn't because you were so unlovable. It's because his love never ends. And so he said, I have to die to have that oneness, that covenantal love with you again. So maybe a suggestion is let's begin our journey of sexual wholeness just with this simple truth. Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me because of my struggles with sexual brokenness. Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me because of my struggles with sexual brokenness. And if I always struggle, Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me. If I never figure it out, Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me. If I'm struggling in ways that other people don't like, Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me. If I die with sexual brokenness in my life like we all will do one day, Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me. I think that's where sexual wholeness starts. It starts with this understanding that Jesus, like he's seen it all, right? He's seen every sin we have committed and every sin we're about to commit and all those shameful things, even the stuff that we don't think is a sin, but God thinks it's a sin. He looked at all of that stuff and he says, I'll die for her. I'll die for him. And he invites us into the thing, the only thing that our hearts are really longing for this secure, intimate love and oneness with the God of the universe that we have lost. And so reframing this quest, the quest for sexual wholeness, it is not a quest for the right version of sexuality. That's not what it is. It's not a quest for like the sort of sexuality where we control ourselves so we don't do any of the wrong things and we do all the right things. That's actually a quest for moralistic self-deception, right? That's what that quest is. The quest for sexual wholeness is different. Sexual wholeness is about rediscovering a secure relationship with Jesus and walking with him back towards the beautiful life that we were created for. The life we were created for but have forever lost. And he will restore it and he will lead us and he will define it for us. So Jesus, we come to you today... um, broken, we know that. Sinful, we know that. Probably more sinful than we realize. But we also have this longing. And we know this longing is ultimately for you, not for sex, it's for you. And so we bring it to you and we declare uh, to our hearts and our souls that we are secure in your love. Would you do something with me? Would you stand up, open your eyes? I'm going to put this on the screen. Can we just pray this prayer to Jesus together? Pray this with me. Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me because of my struggles with sexual brokenness. Even if you don't believe it, just 
Say it anyway. Say it one more time with me. Jesus, I'm not going to doubt your love for me because of my struggles with sexual brokenness. So Jesus, we stand before you as people broken, surely sinful, surely, but so deeply loved by you, it's hard to understand and wrap our heads around. We thank you for that love and we recognize that is our soul's deepest longing. So we fix our eyes on you and on your love. Jesus, in your name we trust. Amen. Amen. Join us as we close.